following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take God's word this morning and turn with me to the second chapter of the Apostle Peter's second letter. 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want to begin our time by reading in your hearing the life-inducing, faith-sustaining, mind-renewing, and soul-purifying words of the true and living God. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Grace Community Church, these are the words of the one true and living God. Thanks be to God. If you have been a Christian long enough, And even if you've been a Christian for a short amount of time, you know very well that the majority isn't always right. Having passed from death to life and having been delivered from the domain of darkness and having been transferred to the kingdom of Christ, our eyes have been opened to see that Not only is the majority not always right, but from a biblical perspective, the majority should never be followed. In Matthew 7, our Lord Jesus Christ warned us. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The Apostle John puts things into perspective in terms of who the minority are and who the majority are. He says, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The Apostle Paul, likewise, split humanity into two distinct categories. Number one, there are those, according to Paul, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
They are following the course of this world, the majority. They are following the prince of the power of the air. They live in the lusts of their flesh, constantly carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And then there's the second category of people. In the same chapter, he describes them as those who've been made alive together with Christ. They've been saved by grace through faith, and they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. They are obviously the minority. So the first group of people, there are those who are walking, following the course of this world. And then there are those who are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Those are the minority. In fact, I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but when you're trying to discern the will of God, you obviously have the word of God to inform your discernment. But you can also look at the world and ask, what are the majority doing? And do the opposite. Why? Because the world always resists the will of its creator. And sadly, oftentimes, you can even look at the majority of those who claim to believe in Christ but lack sufficient evidence to uphold that claim, and usually you'll be safe to do the opposite of what they're doing. Not only have we learned that the majority isn't always right, but we've also learned that numbers mean absolutely nothing. When we were rescued, when we were delivered, when we were born again, when the Spirit came and filled us and began to lead us, one of the things we learned instantly is that numbers mean nothing. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul paints a vivid picture of those in the world who hate God, hate his truth, and hate his glory. And at the end of that dark chapter, chapter 1 verse 32, Paul says of them, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So you have this picture of humanity not only sinning willingly and intentionally and deliberately and knowingly, but you also have them approving and applauding those who live like that. And one of the reasons people join together to celebrate sin and to approve and applaud those who likewise indulge in sin is because it gives them a sense of confidence that the more there are who behave like them, the better off they are. They imagine that the more people who are out there calling evil good and good evil, the more likely they'll succeed in normalizing sin and searing the conscience. But for what? Only to walk through life with a seared conscience? Indulging in the passions of the flesh along with the majority? Only to find that at the end of your road, the living God has no problem in his justice, casting the majority into hell for their wickedness. All for what? Peter has already warned his readers not to succumb to the pressures of the majority. He said this in chapter 4 of his first letter, if you were here with us several months back. He writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, 
orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, they slander you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. As Exodus 23 verse 2 says, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. What's interesting from Peter's words here is that rather than focusing on the temporary benefits of abstaining from sensual pursuits of the masses, Peter turns the attention of his readers to the day of judgment and said, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, he doesn't say continue to hold on, continue to persevere. He says they're putting pressure on you. They will give an account to him on the last day. Considering the end is one of the most powerful means of escaping present temptations to join with the multitudes. Considering the end is a powerful weapon in battling sin. Considering the end, when you stand before that great white throne that makes every other government and white house and throne on this earth look like Paper mache as one preacher put it. As we turn our attention to verses 2 and 3 now of 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter, in warning the church of false teachers, describes the success that false teachers will experience. And the fact that he writes in the future tense tells us that what he's describing in these verses will be true of this time between Christ's first and second coming. In other words, this is going to characterize this present evil age, the presence of false teachers, the success of false teachers. As you look at verses 1 to 3 in your Bible, notice the five will statements in verses 1 to 3. Number one, there will be false teachers among you. Number two, they will bring in destructive heresies. Number three, they will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. Number four, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And number five, they will exploit you with false words. All of this to say that their presence and their influence and even their success is inevitable. It's bound to happen. Now, the last time we were in 2 Peter, we considered verse 1 where we noted three particulars regarding false teachers. We considered their inevitable presence. Peter says, there will be false teachers among you. Secondly, we considered their insidious agenda. He says that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And number three, we considered their ironic denial. These false teachers were denying the master who bought them both in their life and by their practice, denying him, claiming him with the lips, but denying him with the life. And as we come to verses two and three today, I want to give you three more particulars as Peter unveils this timeless portrait 
of false teachers. In verse 2, we're going to see their infectious influence. At the beginning of verse 3, we're going to see their internal motivation. And then at the end of verse 3, we're going to see their impending condemnation. Again, what Peter does in verses 1 to 3 is he gives us a basic portrait of false teachers. He gives us the who, the what, the when, the where, the why of these individuals. And then he proceeds in verses 4 through 22 to describe them in greater detail. But in verses 1, 2, and 3 alone, Peter lays down 10 realities regarding false teachers. Their arrival is expected. Their infiltration is certain. Their agenda is destructive. Their denial is blasphemous. Their destruction is deserved. Their success is tragic. Their damage is far-reaching. Their motive is selfish. Their arsenal is deception. And he tells us that their condemnation is looming. And again, I want to remind you of the overall purpose of the Apostle Peter in writing this second letter. He's exhorting the church of Jesus Christ to be devoted to the scriptures so that they are able to exercise diligence in pursuing holiness and discernment in avoiding heretics or false teachers. So I want you to see, first and foremost, in verse 2, notice their infectious influence. Verse 2 says, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So they're not going to have a small following. He says many. Many will follow their sensuality. We might conclude that the majority follow their sensuality. It's interesting, there's kind of a a play on words here, because if you look back at chapter 1, verse 16, Peter seems to hint that the false teachers were accusing Peter and the apostles for following cleverly devised myths when they made known to this church and these churches the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, we weren't following cleverly devised myths. He uses that same word now. He says, many will follow their sensuality. Note that word, that word sensuality. It speaks of unrestrained pursuit of ungodly passions. To, to lack restraint when it comes to ungodly attitudes and ungodly practices. There's no restraint. It's going into sin and pleasure and all this world has to offer headlong, without any kind of leash, without any kind of chain, without any kind of restraint. Sensuality, oftentimes when it's found in the various lists in the New Testament, is always coupled with sexual immorality and things of that nature, sins of that nature. So that's more than likely what Peter's referring to. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow and mimic and imitate their lack of restraint when it comes to pursuing The world, many will follow suit. Now, in verse 1, he says that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. But notice that Peter doesn't say, many will follow their heresies. Many will follow their teachings. Now, that's implied in the text, but 
teaching always produces something in the one being taught, right? You become what you learn. You become what you eat. What you consume is indicative of how you live. You become what you eat. And so, as these false teachers are infiltrating the church, introducing secretly destructive, damning heresies, the result is that the people that they are ministering to are not becoming more like Christ, they're becoming more like the world. They're becoming more like their father, the devil. That's what false teaching does. Many will follow their sensuality. You see, the, the, the effect of faithful shepherding and preaching and teaching week in and week out from the word of God, the effect that that has upon a good heart, right? Good, prepared ground is that that person will bear fruit, good fruit, God-pleasing fruit, Christ-honoring fruit. That's the result of biblical ministry, but false ministry produces sensuality, not sanctification. Again, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That means it's broad. It's spacious. It's roomy. You can bring all your baggage. You can bring everything. It's, there's no hindrances there. And what's interesting is that Jesus teaches this in the context of false prophets who come to God's people disguised as sheep, right? They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And a wolf in sheep's clothing will always seek to promote this wide path, this easy path, the path of least resistance, if you will. There's no demands for self-examination. There's no demands for thorough, biblical, Psalm 51-type repentance. If there's mortification talked about, it's the mortification that comes from maybe scraping your hand a little with a, with a butter knife. Jesus says you ought to cut it off if it's offending you, if it's causing you to sin. But a false teacher will, will, will encourage you to, to keep that hand, to retain that right eye that's causing you to sin. Maybe put a patch over it. Don't pluck it out because it's part of who you are, they'll say. It's part of your character. You were born this way, they'll say. Well, that's why you have to be born again. It's because we are born this way and this way leads to death. We are born in sin. We are born inclined towards evil. We are born with an inclination towards the things that God hates. And that's why Jesus calls us to be born again, to come to him, to find life, to find forgiveness, to find redemption and restoration. But this is a sad success story, right? Many will follow their sensuality. Many will imitate their sensuality, their lack of restraint. This is to be expected both in Peter's time and till the time of the end, friends. We ought to expect this. We ought to be discerning enough to detect it while we expect it. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this to Timothy, I charge you, very strong word, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And I charge you also by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove with that word, rebuke with that word, exhort with that word, with complete patience and teaching. And notice what he says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They can't hang. They can't tolerate it. They can't persevere under sound biblical teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or their own lusts, their sensuality. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you want to know why people turn away from the truth? It's not because the truth is hard to grasp. It's not because the truth is hard to understand. It's because they have their own passions and they want teachers to suit those passions. They want to listen to preaching that makes them feel comfortable in their flesh and comfortable with their ungodly identity and comfortable in their sin. And oftentimes that's a discouragement to those of us who are sharing the truth with people. We share the truth at work or we share the truth with a family member and it's the truth that causes them to turn away. And we end up thinking, oh, it's something I said. Maybe I, I said it wrong. Maybe I said it in, in a mean way. And we beat ourselves up. But oftentimes, most of the time, when people turn away, and then not just turn from biblical teaching, but they turn to Christian teaching that is a little bit more palatable, it's not because the truth is not delightful and pleasing and beautiful. It's because they want teaching that suits their passions, suits their lusts, that doesn't call for looking to Christ. It doesn't call for dealing effectively and thoroughly with sin. That's why people turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Well, notice what Peter says in the second half of verse 2. And because of them, because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So many are following after these false teachers, both in Peter's day and friends. If we open our eyes, it's happening in our day as well. Many follow easy teaching, soft preaching. It's been said that soft preaching produces hard hearts. But hard preaching produces soft hearts. And I would add hard but biblical teaching produces soft hearts. It's what we need. We need to hear the truth, whether we like it or not. That's why Paul charged Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. Your command is to preach the word, not preach the word when people want to hear it or preach the word when, when the church is doing great. Preach the word when things are going well. No, he says, preach the word, period. And I charge you to preach this word until the return of Christ. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. One of the sad things as a pastor I've seen throughout 10 years now is when you have people come in and you know they're coming from, uh, you know, uh, not really a church that's teaching scripture, 
more of a, a fun experience, a fun, happy time there that's happening all the time. There's never any biblical charges or commands or exp- exp- exposition from the word. And it's interesting because as soon as we open our service with, please take your Bibles and turn with me to, within 10 seconds, you, you see it in their faces. You lose them. They're lost. They, they can't endure biblical teaching. They came wanting to be entertained. They came wanting to have jokes told from the pulpit. They came wanting to be tickled. But as soon as we start to understand and seek to understand the mind of Peter or the mind of Jesus and and, and the truth that Jesus is teaching here, you lose them. Why? Because they can't endure sound teaching. Just like a cat cannot endure a bath. they're, They're incompatible. And so trying to bring people into a, 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 a context of biblical exposition is like trying to bring cats into water. They can't endure it. Why do we love the truth? Because our hearts have been changed by the grace of God to love the truth. We can't sit here and say, well, and puff ourselves up and say, well, I love the truth and I came to love the truth on my own. No, friends, our eyes were opened Not by ourselves, but by a gracious, generous, kind, merciful God. And not only did he open our eyes to see the truth, but he gave us new hearts to love that truth. And we are those who, by the grace of God and many others out there with us across this city, across this state, across this country, across this world, who are saying, give us the truth. Give us the truth. Bring the truth. It's going to hurt, but it's going to bring comfort. It's going to cut but it's going to heal. It's going to knock down, but it's going to build up. And I need all of that. You need all of that. There are times when you need to be knocked off your horse. But by this same word, God brings you back upon your feet, brings you back on the path. There are times when you need to have a hole just blown right through your chest by the word of God. And yet it's that same God who works on that heart and heals up that wound And restores you to full health so that you're working better than you were before you had that hole blown in your chest by the word of God. This is the God we serve. He loves us enough to wound us and he loves us and he heals us. And it's the truth that accomplishes this. But because of these false teachers who turn away people from the truth, it says that the way of truth will be blasphemed. The word there means slandered, maligned, reviled, to bring into disrepute, to speak evil of. So what's happening here is we're reading about the far-reaching impact of false teachers and false teaching. It doesn't just bring in its immediate hearers into sensuality, into licentiousness, into all forms of sin. By the way, the word he uses for sensuality here is found in its plural sense in the Greek, which, which, which implies that Peter's talking about all forms and all kinds of sensual pursuits. It's not just one kind. There's a plethora of sin in view here. The way of truth will be blasphemed. So now this is obviously the world looking in upon professing believers and saying, if that's what Christianity is, this is wicked. I don't want it. These people claim that we need to change our lives. We need to change, but they remain unchanged. 
You see, these are the people who, by the way, are, are some of the most vocal in the world, who have no reality with God, who have no fellowship with God. They've been taught enough rules and self-righteousness, you know, their heads being beat back and forth every Sunday with self-righteousness. Meanwhile, their lives remain unchanged, but they go forth condemning everybody else, condemning the world alongside of them. When the world looks in and says, you're no different from me, that's the effect of false teaching. That's the effect that it has upon the world. Now, Paul illustrates this in Romans chapter 2, if you want to turn there with me. I want to show you how the world comes to blaspheme the truth. How the world comes to blaspheme the way of truth. By the way, the world doesn't need any help in blaspheming the way of truth. The world doesn't need any help blaspheming God. So God forbid that we, as the people of God, give them another reason. Romans chapter 2, verse 17, Paul is, in Romans chapter 2, showing that the Jews themselves are no better off, right? In Romans chapter 1, he paints this black, dark, ugly picture of us Gentiles before we met Christ or before Christ met us, and it's ugly. We are found those who are we are found to be those who are exchanging the truth of God for lies, exchanging the glory of God for idols, exchanging God for lesser things, and spiraling down into all manner of sin. But then in chapter 2, he turns to the Jews and says, essentially, don't be pointing your finger at the Gentiles because you yourselves are equally condemned before God. And when we get to verse 17, he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you yourself are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, he says, you then, verse 21, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Mark that down. That's how you can get the world to blaspheme the way of truth. When you're teaching everyone, but you're not teaching yourself. He goes on and says, verse 21, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? This was apparently a practice in that day that when the Jews went in and would tear apart a temple and, and, and celebrate that they're, they're desecrating this place where this false god was worshipped. In the midst of that, they would say something like, but this is a good piece of gold here that we want to keep, or this is a good treasure over here that we want to keep. This is evil. This is an idolatrous place, but this is a nice, nice piece of, piece of metal here. He says, you who abhor idols and desecrate temples, do you rob temples? He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You're the reason the world blasphemes the name of God. You're the reason the world looks at God and says, what a powerless, weak God. 
throw out all these commands but can't even change your people. Usually they throw out, they throw out the baby and the bathwater. They throw out everything. If it has the name of Christian in it, they throw it out because people who are influenced by false teaching and live sensuous lives bring this about. Now, what is it at the heart of what Romans 2 is teaching us? It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. You shouldn't steal. Meanwhile, you cheat on your time card. You shouldn't rob temples. Meanwhile, you are living in idolatry. You shouldn't commit adultery. Meanwhile, your eyes are filled with adultery. It's hypocrisy. It's not practicing what we preach that brings about the name of God being blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the world. Back to 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, And because of them, the way of truth, the way of truth, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 19, the Christian sect, if you will, was referred to as the way. Right? It was the way instead of the church. I mean, that was definitely a name for the church back then, the church, but they, they, were, they were referred to as the way. The way. And so what Peter has in mind could either be the way of truth is blasphemed. In other words, the church is slandered because of these false teachers or the way of truth literally being a reference to the gospel. Either way, it's the gospel or the message that creates the people. And so the whole thing is going to be blasphemed if our lives don't match what we preach with our lips. Many will follow their sensuality, and the way of truth, because of them, will be blasphemed. The way of truth will be brought into disrepute. Now, you find a pattern here. You find this, the destructive heresy gives way to depraved conduct, always. And depraved conduct among those who profess to be believers gives way to the way of truth being blasphemed by the world this was Paul's concern when he spoke to the servants in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. He said, Let all who were under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And when Paul in Titus was referring to women, he says they are to be self-controlled, they are to be pure, they are to be working at home, they are to be kind and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. You see, what, what would revile the word of God? Unruly women. What would revile the, the word of God? Servants in that day who were rebellious towards their masters and doing whatever they wanted. In other words, when Christians don't act like Christians, the, the, the name of God is blasphemed. And so God, help us. By God's grace, we're, we're not under false teaching. You should be examining what you're being taught here on Sunday mornings by the Bible in your lap or the Bible on your phone or the Bible on your iPad. You have to check the teaching constantly to make sure that you are hearing chapter and verse. But one of the things we can learn from this is that our lives better match our lips. And when they don't, one of the most powerful tools, especially in the family context, is the constant practice of apologizing, seeking forgiveness and repentance when your life does not match what you profess with your lips. Your children 
more than anyone, sees when you're a hypocrite. They see when your lives don't match your lips. That's just the nature of being in a close uh, home, right? The problem is when a parent is always self-justifying everything. I I did this because of something you did, right? No, you did it because you were lacking self-control. Apologize. Acknowledge your sin, not just sin in general, but your specific sin. Become an apologizer. It's a great tool to prevent the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. But this is the effect of false teaching. Many hear it, it tickles the ears, and so they flee to it. But because they're fleeing to a flawed system, that system does not sanctify. It encourages sensual living. It encourages you to remain in your sin. It encourages you to embrace who you are instead of fleeing who you are and fleeing to Christ. So that, according to Peter, is their infectious influence. As we turn to verse 3 now, we see their internal motivation. Notice what he says. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Notice that these false teachers are motivated They are very motivated. In fact, every preacher is motivated. Every teacher of God's word is motivated. I have a strong motivation. That's that's why I, by the grace of God, have not quit, have not stepped away, have not forsaken this position as a pastor. I have this thing called motivation. But everyone has motivation. The question is, is your motivation good and God-pleasing, or is your motivation bad and sinful and wicked in the eyes of God? You see, a man remaining as a pastor for 10, 15, 20, 50, 60 years is no sure sign that his heart is right before God, because all those years could have been the result of him being motivated to be up up in front of everyone and, and up on stage in front of everyone. You see, don't let, the, don't, don't, don't let looks fool you. The motivation of false teachers is greed. Greed, translated elsewhere in the New Testament as covetousness. In their covetousness, they will exploit you. They will cheat you. They will make business out of you. In their greed. Friends, greed is a very, very powerful motivator. It's the reason people do what they do in cheating in the workplace. It's the reason you have CEOs being arrested because of for stealing money, right? And you even find it happening in churches, right? Where money is being taken little by little by the treasurer. And we saw that with Judas. Greed is a, is a powerful motivator. He sold the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. And what did that get him? Out of nothing. In fact, not only did it get him nothing, it got him destruction. Don't think that just because you're you, you're not susceptible to greed. What, a, what greater privilege could someone have than living with Jesus, the incarnate word of the living God, for three years? Don't think that you're somehow 
exempt from being influenced by greed, motivated by greed. In their greed, they will exploit you in their covetousness. You see, Augustine was right. He, I think he, was, he hit it on the head when he talked about covetousness and greed. He says, you have made us for yourself in one of his confessions to God. He says, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That's just, that's just how we're wired. We're born restless. We think that this will satisfy us, and so we pursue that. We think that a great career will satisfy us, and so we pursue that. And so we think a great marriage will satisfy us, and we pursue that, only to find that these things in themselves do not satisfy. Our hearts are trained in greed. In fact, chapter 2, verse 14, he's going to refer to these false teachers as those who have hearts trained, forged in greed, covetousness, never being content. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's why they do what they do. People often ask, does the false teacher know he's a false teacher? Does a Benny Hinn know he's Benny Hinn? Does Joel Osteen know he's Joel Osteen? We can't see into the heart. We can't see into the mind. But we know that false teaching is rooted in greed. Rooted in greed. Rooted in covetousness. Think about how easy this is to do. You know, after 10 years of of ministry here, sometimes you get the well-meaning person who asks you, how big is the church now? And I have to be honest and say, oh, we're still about 60-ish people, give or take, on a Sunday. And, and you kind of see that disappointment in their, in their faces. You've been doing this for 10 years, and you only are, are, are ministering to 60 people? Your church ought to have, it should have exploded by now. You should have your own building. You should have moved into the Pan American Center. 10 years, you should, you should not be in this, this hall. You just see it in their faces. You hear it in their voices. And the fact of the matter is, is I've thought about it over the years, even during those difficult seasons you have as a pastor. You know how easy it would be to grow this church? You know how easy it would be to fill every one of these seats that's lacking a person right now? Here's what it would look like. Maybe we use the Bible, but we don't seek to understand and apply the Bible We just use it as somewhat of a diving board to talk about the latest topics in the world today. We use the Bible to to be like a diving board where we touch it in the beginning, but then we jump off into the deep end over here, and we cater to people's likes and wants, and we make them laugh, and and, uh, we replace Steve, as great as Steve is, we, we replace Steve with a... You know, a, a, a band that comes up and sings seven verses 11 times. And they repeat the same words 11 times. It's 7-11 worship, as one preacher put it. And, and it's not jam-packed with scripture. It's not jam-packed with sound doctrine, the music. It's, it's just, it's just, it's therapeutic, right? Right? It's, 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 it's for my time to come to church and, and, and get what I need before God right now. And I'm just going to sing these words that really mean nothing in the end. I mean, it's just repeating Repeating, repeating a verse, repeating a, a, a short statement. You are here. You are with us. You are at work among us, right? And we sing that 20 times. And it's not for the purpose of exalting the living God. It's that through this music, this is therapy for me on Sunday mornings. It's doing something for me versus 
this is not about you. This is, worship is not about you. It's not about your style of music. You can, you can leave this place and turn on Spotify and go back to whatever style of music suits you. This hour, this time that we have together is to exalt the one true and living God. To hear his voice coming through the pages of scripture through, through, through various means and mouths, right? But, but it's, it's about him. It's about fixing our eyes on him. It's about tuning in our ears to him. It's about having our hearts renewed by him. It's about having our minds transformed by him. Our worldview shaped and forged so that when we walk out of here, we have a biblical worldview and we're more inclined with that biblical worldview to glorify God and to enjoy him in this world. But it would be so easy to have this place booming. In their greed, they will exploit you. There's no contentment. And I will say that Christ is the key to discontentment. Always. Christ is the satisfier of the hearts of his people. But being Christless, they are covetous. They are living in greed. That's what they're after. And so you'll, you'll hear language through these, some of these false teachers on the TV, like, hey, you want to prove your love for God? You need to sow your seed towards this ministry. And really what that means is throw your bucks towards this ministry. Throw, this, throw your checks. Throw your, we'll even take cards now. Throw your money at us and you watch God bless you. You, you sow it in faith. As long as you believe, believe this is going towards a great purpose, give us your money and watch God work. As if, you know, we were walking out of the hardware store yesterday and Nehemiah was mesmerized at this gumball machine that he's probably never seen in his life. Yes, you put a quarter in it, you turn it, and gumballs come out. And yet, that's how false teachers work when it comes to God. They see God as a means to an end. Throw your faith in, and then you'll get something back for yourself. Throw your money in to God and he'll release this gumball into your life. In their greed, notice what they'll do. He says, they will exploit you. They'll use you. They'll cheat you. They'll turn you from a soul into a business. Friends, Every individual that we see that is walking in this world is an immortal soul that will spend eternity either in the New Jerusalem or in the lake of fire. God forbid that we ever exploit someone, use them for our selfish ends. Peter is saying so much, yet with so little words, that's probably because the Spirit of God is leading him, directing him to write what he's writing. In their greed, they will exploit you. They will cheat you. They will make business out of you. It's so sad to see when pastors view their people as numbers, when they view their people as business, when they view their people as just something to get in return. And notice the, the weapon that the false teachers are using here. It's at the end there. In their greed, they will exploit you with False words. False words. Fabricated words in the Greek. 
Words that are made up, words that are formed, words that are molded. Some have pointed out that the word fabricated or false is the word plastoise from which we get the word plastic. I don't know whether that's true or not, you know, looking at the etymology and the root of words, but it is worth consideration. Fake words, false words. Turn with me to Ezekiel 34. I want you to see how this works. Ezekiel 34, go to the Old Testament. Beginning in verse 1, the prophet says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill, a reference to idolatry. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And if you continue to read, which I encourage you to finish this later sometime, you find that the motivation for these false prophets in that day was just greed. They saw the people as good for business, good to make them wealthy, good to clothe them. And so back to 2 Peter, he says, In their greed they will exploit you. How? With false words. Isn't that crazy that, as I was thinking about it yesterday, salvation, eternal salvation, that is, a sinner being born in Adam, in union with Adam, our first father, destined for death, that the means by which God has ordained and decreed to bring a sinner from, who is destined for eternal hell to bring them to eternal glory is communication. Words. Using these things, this, 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 this instrument called word. Words. Right? He didn't save us by coming down and swooping, you know, causing angels to sweep us up. He, he uses words to get into our minds, to sink into our hearts. He uses words to bring about regeneration and the new birth. He uses words to cause us to hate sin. He uses words to cause us to love his glory above everything. He uses words to warn us, to keep us from those cliffs that lead to our destruction. He uses words to sanctify us and to refine our minds and to refine our worldviews. It's all words, communication, speech. That's what he uses. That's what he's ordained. And so what the false teachers are doing 
is they're using false words, fabricated words, molded words of their own concoction, of their own doing in order to suit their own passions. Isn't it amazing that the dynamic you find here is that the false teacher uses false words among the people to suit his own passions. But then from Paul's perspective, you have the people turning away from the truth, accumulating for themselves teachers who scratch their itching ears for what? To suit their own passions. So you have selfishness in the hearer and selfishness in the false teacher. It's a horrible horrible dynamic and yet the end for both the one deceived by false teaching and the one doing the deceiving is destruction destruction the false teacher is using the sheep to get what he wants using the flock using the people to get what he wants and the people are using him to get what they want it's a deadly dynamic they will exploit you with false Words, not the words of God. They see the people as good for business. They see the church as good for business. Now, people like this because it, false words gives people a false sense of security. Right? We saw this in Jeremiah chapter 6 a couple weeks ago where God said through the prophet, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So the dynamic was there in that day as well. The prophet and the priest were proclaiming to a people that weren't walking with God, it's okay. There's peace in your future. There's peace between you and God now. And yet, from the least of them to the greatest, everyone was greedy for unjust gain. Both those being led astray and those leading astray are both greedy for unjust gain. And so there's this false security that that all is well. A false teacher will never cause you to examine yourself will never cause you to ask the deep questions about your soul in relation to eternity. A false teacher will almost always focus on the here and now. And if there's anything future, it's about the heaven that awaits you. The heaven that awaits you. It's never, ever, ever calling your attention to the hell that actually is waiting you, awaiting you. False words are used by false teachers to exploit selfish people. Well, last, as we come to the end of verse 3, we see their impending condemnation. He says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Their condemnation, that word there, is translated elsewhere as their judgment. God has a special place in hell for false teachers. You find throughout the Gospels and some of Paul's writings that there are degrees of punishment once someone enters into hell. Those who know the Master's will and fail to do it, 
is greater stripes reserved for that individual. And so we have these degrees of judgment, and yet what Peter is saying here is that from long ago, these individuals, their condemnation is not idle. It's not just going nowhere, in other words. Their destruction is not asleep. Peter is referring to their future. And obviously this, bo- this refers to both the teacher and the follower. Yes, God has a place reserved for the false teacher. But that also applies to those who have been deceived by false teachers. See, we often view the masses who are following the teachings of Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and guys like these, we often view them as the victims. Friends, there's nothing innocent about them. Yes, our hearts ought to break and we ought to reach out with the truth to people who are wrapped up under these false teachers. But as Paul has made clear, they flock to these false teachers, not because they're desperately seeking the truth, but because these false teachers give them exactly what they want. A promise of peace, peace with the Holy God when there is no peace. How do people do that today? If you just come up and say this prayer, repeat after me, sinner's prayer, what, what happens? In a sense, we say peace, peace, when there is no peace, because that is not biblical conversion. That is not biblical salvation. Their condemnation from long ago, which could mean long ago in the sense of God's decree. God has decreed that those who lead people astray will be destroyed. Or it could be long ago in the sense of the very beginning of their ministry, the very beginning of their teaching ministry. Long ago, it was set to be condemned, set to be destroyed. The last phrase there in verse 3 is very Interesting. Their destruction is not asleep. Not idle, not asleep. It's in motion, in other words. You have, to use an illustration, right? You are in your car, and it's in idle, right? And it's it's really not doing anything until it goes into motion. The idea here is that their condemnation is in motion. Why? Because ultimately the God who is the judge of all men, all women, is coming for these people. That's the idea. Their condemnation, their destruction is not asleep because the God who sees and knows and understands all things is not a God who sleeps. He's a God who knows. The question was asked in the Old Testament, he who formed the eye, does he not see? He who formed the ear, does he not hear? The implication is that God sees everything that happens among the children of men, and God hears everything that happens among the children of men. He hears the thoughts, he hears the conversations, he hears the teaching, he hears what's going on down below, which makes him a suitable, perfect judge for the last day. He will be both judge and jury and witness. He's everything. The condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep because the God who will judge is not a God who sleeps. They will give an account. God will have the last word. 
Friends, we're going to go deeper, obviously, next week as we dive into chapter, verse 4 and following. But what God is showing us here is that he values the truth and those who proclaim the truth. God puts a, 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 a high price on the truth and those who proclaim the truth, not just with their lips, but then match that truth with their lives. In a congregation this big or this small, depending on how you want to look at it, you all know people who are under false teaching. You all know people who are under false teaching. What's the antidote? What's the solution? What's the remedy? The remedy is Christ. Seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. We often think, oh, it's going to be so hard to reach so-and-so because they're so wrapped up in false teaching. Yeah, but what they're not seeing in that false teaching is the glory of Christ. They're being taught a lot of things, but they're not being taught of the glory of Christ. And it's the glory of Christ rightly communicated from people who are walking in the light as he is in the light. The glory of Christ being communicated from people who are walking in the light with that Christ is what they need to be brought out of that darkness, to be brought out of that dungeon, to be brought out of that deception where all it is is false words all the time, all the time, all the time. Friends, the solution for the lost person who's never heard about Christ, the solution for the lost person who's deceived in false teaching in the name of Christ, the solution is Christ. The solution is the gospel. The solution is the truth. The truth about God, who he is, and his excellencies, and all of his adorable attributes. The solution is in the truth of man, created in the image of God, fallen from that image, yet retaining that image, doomed to destruction of his own fault, of his own will. And the solution is that God, for such sinners, out of eternal love for his glory and his Son, has sent the Son to be the Redeemer of all those who come to him by faith and lay hold of him by faith and promises that all who come to him by faith and believe his word, believe his truth, have eternal life now and will, as Christian explained earlier, will one day lay hold of that which is truly life. Friends, may we not give the world any reasons, more reasons, I should say, to blaspheme the God we claim to love and obey. May our lives match our lips. May the way we conduct ourselves within our families match what the standard is in God's word for husbands and for wives and for parents, for mothers, fathers, for children. May we walk in the light as he is in the light, that we might have fellowship with one another, knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I want to conclude by pointing you to Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Matthew 13, verse 24. I want you to see this in motion because as we're, as we're viewing this portrait of false teachers in its basic form and yet so descriptive, I want you to see how this plays out and how it ultimately finds its roots in the devil himself. 
You see, God is the God of truth, and the devil is, as Jesus said, the father of lies, the father of false words. God is the source of truth, and the devil is the source of lies, the father of lies. Listen to how this works. Look at verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now, this isn't just any kind of weed, by the way. It's more than likely what was referred to as a darnel. And if you look up later on you know, your computer or your phone, whatever, type in darnel and the word wheat. And what's interesting about the two is that a darnel was a form of weed that looks just like the wheat, but it's a weed. It's, it's not wheat, but it looks like wheat. It's a weed. And that's what he's saying here sowed those kinds of weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, When do you want us to go? Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Gather the bundles to be burned. Burned, You see, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Ultimately, the false teacher and those who are duped by their false teaching, that all finds its source in the father of lies, who, while the church of Jesus Christ is being built, the enemy sends people who look like wheat or they look like sheep. They have a big, like Kenneth Copeland does, big world behind his pulpit that says Jesus is Lord. They look like Christians. And at the end of the age, there will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. You see, that's what's happening right now. Is that the enemy is sowing Darnell weeds among the wheat And the distinction right now, of course, is that those who are truly belonging to Christ truly do walk in the light as he is in the light. But yet those who bear the name of Christ and yet, one, deny him by their works and teach others to deny him, they are sown by the devil. And yet we are armed ourselves to take the truth that liberates, the truth that delivers, and the truth that satisfies to them. And watch them be set free. And watch them be brought in. Right? What has, to, what has to happen in a heart trained in greed? Something more powerful than you and I has to satisfy that heart. And that is Christ, the fountain 
of living waters. Are you drinking of this fountain right now? Do you find yourself just drinking up all that Christ is and all that he has said and all that he has promised? If that is you, you will, you will find yourself with a joy and a satisfaction that keeps you there in the love of God, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let's stand. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Brothers and sisters, have a blessed week.
follow up tomorrow? When's your follow up tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. Nine four thirty.